You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. I'm Mark Feinsand, executive reporter for MLB.com. Welcome to the Executive Access Podcast. Alex Anthopoulos was named general manager of the Atlanta Braves last November, taking over a team rocked by scandal. Violations of several rules regarding both the international market and domestic draft led to the resignation of general manager John Coppolella, not to mention the loss of 13 prospects, as well as restrictions in the international spending and the loss of a draft pick. But Anthopoulos took the job, bullish on the horde of prospects in Atlanta's system. With seven prospects in MLB Pipeline's top 100, the Braves have reason for hope as Anthopoulos heads into his first season at the top. I sat down with Anthopoulos in his office at Champion Stadium in the Disney Wide World of Sports Complex in Lake Buena Vista, Florida, to talk about his career, from his beginnings opening fan mail for the Expos to his ascent through the Blue Jays organization. We'll hit on some free agent recruiting techniques, his Olympic experience with the Greeks, and much, much more. Enjoy this conversation with Braves Executive Vice President and General Manager Alex Anthopoulos. Alex, thanks for taking the time. Appreciate Glad it. Glad to be here. So you grew up in Montreal. Yeah. Were you a big Expos fan as a kid? I was, and um, really got into the Expos. 1992, first year, Felipe Lou was around. Team became a good team. And um, for me, it's something that I realized I was a casual fan of the team. And once they started winning... I just really got into it. I started going to a ton of games. I had a friend that had seats, and obviously attendance was, was bad at the time, so he needed someone to come with him. So um, I started going to more and more games, and I just was immersed in it. I know growing up in New York as a Yankee fan, 1994 was a tough year. They were, you know, cer- certainly seemed like they were putting it together. How tough was that as a Montreal fan, knowing how good that team was and then having the season cut short? Tough. Um, you know, I remember, <clears throat> again, same thing. You're a fan. You're proud of your team. It was the little engine that could, right? I felt like the Expos never got any any respect. This week in baseball was a you know, show that I watched all the time, and I remember they did a big thing on the Expos at one point because they were rolling. And I remember I taped it because I was so on my on the v, VHS. VHS, the sure. I was so excited about it. Um, and even when the strike hit, you just figured it would come around, and it wouldn't end. And um, there were seventy four and forty. I'm pretty sure. I think there were six games up on on the Braves. And I remember after I got this job, I was eating dinner with John Schultz, and I asked him about the Braves team. And obviously, I remembered Cliff Floyd hitting a grand slam off Greg Maddox at Olympic Stadium. And I was asking him about the team, and he said, "No way, we would have come back. We were really good." And um, you know, it, it goes to show you, you know, one how good the Braves were, two how confident they were. But you know, I was looking at it through rose-colored glasses. I mean, that team I felt like had every opportunity to win a World Series, and certainly they didn't end up tearing it apart. Had a chance to go on a long run. 1998, less than two weeks before your 21st birthday, your dad passes away. What was his biggest impact on you? You know, it's funny. I've been asked that before, and he wasn't verbal necessarily with do this, do that. And he talked about he was big on school, big on academics, education, math. He used to really stress to me math. Learning different languages were really important. We spoke. We didn't speak Greek at home. We didn't necessarily speak French, but he encouraged me to speak both of them. Um, And I think subconsciously he worked quite a bit. And he never told me, you need to work hard, you need to put in the hours. But I remember, you know, he would sometimes, I'd go with him to the office. He had a small heating and ventilation company, and we might be going somewhere on a Saturday, Sunday. And he might say, I need to stop in the office for a little bit. And I'd hang out with him for an hour or two. Or, again, he was an an engineer, and he would bring blueprints home. And, you know, we'd have him on a big, big table, and he would go through them. And he would want to um, show me how some of those things were done. But I think subconsciously, just seeing how many hours he put in and the work that he put in, I think it probably impacted me just in terms of work ethic and things like that. You were in college. I was uh, in college. McMaster, studied economics. McMaster yeah. University. Yeah. Studying economics, yeah. right? And I came back home, and um, for the summer, I started to work with him. And remember, we went to lunch one day, and he said, Ah, oh, you know what? I'm not feeling that great. And um, he was going to see his cardiologist the next day. And he went to see his cardiologist the next day, and he said, You know what? You may have had a heart attack and not even realized it two days ago. So you should go to the hospital, check yourself in. I went to see him that night. And the day he passed, which is crazy, but was the day Mike Piazza got traded. Because I remember um, I got a phone call that he had had a heart attack in the hospital. And, or, and one of my friends had called me at the office. I was working at his office and I was, my head was spinning. And I just, 
he just said, hey, did you see Mike Piazza got traded? And I just said, hey, I need to go. I need to go. I just hung up the phone. But it's funny that that's one of the things that I remember to this day. It was a whirlwind from there. I think three days after he passed, I was back at work and was really determined and driven uh, to continue on the work he had put in, the time he had put in, and um, did it for two years. And then finally one day I woke up and said, I'm 23 and I'm not an engineer. I have no interest in heating. I was taking night classes to try to accelerate the learning curve. And I wasn't happy at all. I said, I can't do this the next four years of my life. And I love sports. I love baseball. I said, I want to give this thing a shot. So you and your brothers decide, make the difficult decision to sell the company. Yep. And you decide you're going to give a career in baseball a try. How did you go about doing that? You know, I phone calls, emails, uh, knocking on doors, applied to every team. I had an internship in community affairs lined up with the Marlins. Um, and then they had to rescind it, just being Canadian, getting a work permit, getting a visa. So a little bit crushed there. Um, from there, I just finally, I remember I called Jim Beatty, who was the GM of the Expos at the time. I, I got his phone number. And um, I remember I got his direct line, spring training, says March. I pick, I just call him. He answers the phone, Jim Beatty. I couldn't believe he answered. I hung <laughs> up the phone. I hung up the phone right away. And then I kind of got the courage to say, hey, you can't, you know, you need to do this. So I called him back. I introduced myself. Told him I'd work for free. Just wanted to get involved. I'd seen the other side of doing something you didn't love. And I didn't care about money. Obviously, I wasn't married. I didn't have kids. And I knew I really wanted to pursue something. I'm like, I don't care what I'm doing. I'm typing in scouting reports, whatever it was. I love the analysis of it. I love scouting. Or I thought being able to break down players. And, you know, finally he got back to me. And I had to apply for an internship with them. And I kept calling them about 500 times until they finally gave me a job. That first job was opening fan mail on the weekends, right? Yeah, pretty much. They said... We don't really have an internship. We don't really have a role. I think I gave them every reason. I said, you know, first it was money, this, that. I said, I'll just do anything. So I said, if you want, we have a bunch of, we have the players mail in the clubhouse. We don't have a job description. We don't have a, a plan. They gave me a pass. They just threw me in the clubhouse and said, you do what you want. No direction. And um, from there, I said, you know what? Obviously, I felt there was a lot more, you know, I qualified them doing that. But I was going to have a good attitude about it. I'm like, this is going to be the best male guy they've ever seen. I went out, I bought myself a roller, a clips, I set up a, an area for the players, and um, when I was done, it was they played it at nights, um, I'd go sit in the stands and watch games and sit with scouts and try to write scouting reports and come back the next day, and um, I was going to use it as a ve- basically as a vehicle to learn about the analysis and scouting and things like that, but it was a way to get my foot in the door, and middle of the summer, a guy in media relations quit, I was there, um, a lot easier to just hire the person who's already there. And I started doing that as well, but they said, you don't have to do the mail stuff anymore. But I didn't want to bail on that job. Not that I enjoyed it, but I just felt like I, now that it was an upgrade, I didn't want to sort of walk away from that responsibility. So I just did both. I came in earlier and uh, I did the media job and still tried to do scouting at night. Did you find that you took to the scouting side of it pretty quickly? Um, you know what? I just couldn't get enough of it. So I was really fascinated. Again, I'm not really having a professional playing background. I was you know, growing up, I was, I'd wait for the Bill James book to come in the mail. And I would just pour through the numbers and pour through the stats and look for all kinds of things. And it was like a new toy, uh, being able to sit behind the plate. And I knew the numbers and the walk rates and the on-base percentages and all that kind of stuff. But now sitting with scouts and start looking at swings and arm action delivery stuff. And now trying to equate it and then looking back at the statistical side and trying to marry those two and seeing how it correlated. And you know, The example I always used was, I remember Jeremy Giambi. Um, I love the numbers. If, I thought if you prorated him, give him a lot of at-bats, he'd be a really good player. And then when I went down to watch him take batting practice, watch him play, my eyes didn't really match what the numbers were telling me. And no disrespect to Jeremy Giambi, um, but it's the first time I said, you know, it's not all numbers. And you can kind of balance some of those things out. So I really um, got into it. I couldn't get enough of it. I just And then I, when I finally got a job with the Expos as a scouting coordinator... I called the scouting bureau. I got film of every draft pick that they ever had on film. I got them on VHS tapes, DVDs. I'd go home at night and I'd watch guys that were bust, guys that performed late picks. I'd come back in the morning and talk to scouts and ask them about guys. And I just couldn't get enough of it. Um, and I loved every minute of it. I was in the office every day, not because anybody asked me to. It's because I love being there. You had turned down a couple of other job offers in the process while yeah. you were doing that. How determined? How much time had you sort of thought in your head, I'm going to give this a shot before I have to go find a real job? Right. I was probably going to work in finance at one point in Toronto. I had gone to school just outside of Toronto. 
And um, I was living with my aunt at the time, who was a very old school Greek lady. And, um, you know, the thought of me going to work for free in sports was, she was completely beside herself. <laughs> you know, having a good job at a financial institution, long career, um, she felt was the way to go. I was 23 at the time. I, you know, my thought at the time was, look, oh, let me give this thing a shot for two years. If I can get these jobs at 23, I could probably get them at 25. And I didn't want to have a what if moment. I didn't want to look back and have any regrets. So you're working for the team you rooted for as a kid. You get hired as a scouting coordinator, get promoted to assistant scouting director, uh, and you're moving up through the organization. Was there a sense that baseball in Montreal was on shaky ground at that point? Oh, yeah, no doubt. The league owned the team, and I knew they were going to move. And at one point, Omar Minaya had almost gone to the Mets. He was the GM at the time. He didn't. I think it was going to be a co-GM setup at the time. And you knew there was some instability there. And I got promoted at the end of 2003 to assistant scouting director, and the Blue Jays had an opening in, um, you know, in their scouting department as scouting coordinator. So it, would have been, it was a step back from a title standpoint, a cut in pay. But I had already lived through that internship with the Marlins, and the X was at the time, we're going to move to D.C. I knew that was going to happen in time. They were telling me, don't worry about it. We're going to get you a visa. You're a big part of this. And um, the Blue Jays job was open, and I just talked to them. I said, look, I... I've put in way too much time and work to all of a sudden I'm supposedly going to come to D.C. If the United States decides they don't want me there, uh, I'm stuck. And this might be my one opportunity to work for the only remaining Canadian team. So as much as it was a cut in pay, cut in responsibility, cut in role, um, I took the plunge and I went to Toronto. And the fact that I'd gone to school just outside of it, I had friends and so on. But um, I took the plunge in 2004, joined Toronto, and things just moved really fast. Uh, Every promotion and bump up, I would have been happy to stay in the role a little bit longer. I wasn't, it was moving so fast that I, I never had a chance to get stale or stagnate or you know, felt like I was at a, at a crossroads in my career. It was getting old. Um, There's a lot of right place at the right time. JP Ricciardi gave me great opportunity. From scouting coordinator to AGM is unheard of. Um, and for me to just, for him to have the faith in me to do that. And then obviously from, from there, four years later, uh, to get the GM job. Uh, in another organization, I may not have gotten that, that, that opportunity. So, I always say there's definitely a little bit of luck involved. During your time in Toronto as assistant GM, Blue Jays traded for both Jose Bautista and Edwin Encarnacion. Did you have any idea how important those deals were turned out to be to that franchise? Heck no. Um, I remember when we traded for Jose Bautista, you know, they're all linked. So we traded Scott Rowland, he wanted out, turf, so on, and J.P. Ricciardi was, was the GM, and... We traded Scott Rowland. We did not want Edwin Encarnacion back in the deal. It was part of the way they offset some salary. I think he was on a two-year deal with the Reds at the time. $5 million was was a lot. And um, we didn't want him as part of the deal. The real haul in the deal was Zach Stewart was the main guy in the deal. That's the guy that we really went back and forth over for a month. So we had to take Edwin Encarnacion as part of the deal. And when Scott Rowland got hurt, we had seen Jose Batista a ton in spring training. Utility guy, played all over, played the outfield, played the infield, could play third third base. And Roland's shoulder was starting to bark, and we just need someone that could fill that utility role, that could fill that spot. So Roland gets hurt, and we need to go get a guy. And Jose Batista's on trade waivers at the time. I remember going to J.P. Ricciardi and telling him, look, Batista's on trade waivers. He loved him. He'd seen him in spring training. I, I loved him. We had seen him in spring training. We claimed him. We got him. Uh, we made a small trade for him. And... No chance we thought for a second both guys were going to be what they were. So right place, right time. I equated it to the Rays getting Carlos Pena and him really emerging. The Red Sox getting David Ortiz and him really emerging. I'd love to say we were really ahead of the curve. We saw this coming. We had all this great analysis done. I think one thing as an organization we did a good job of when we bought into their ability, we signed them. But uh, the actual acquisitions, the thought was not that they were going to become stars. One of your few experiences in baseball away from the majors, 2004, you helped put together the Greek national baseball team for the Olympics in Athens. What was that experience like? It was great. So I remember when I was leaving the Expos to go to the Blue Jays, I told the Blue Jays my first year with them, hey, I made a commitment to the Greek team. I, you know, I'm going to need to miss, I don't know, it was two or three weeks in the summer in the month of August, and they, they agreed. And I'd spent a lot of time with that team. And um, stayed in the Olympic, you know, with all the other with all the other athletes and got to march out in the opening ceremonies and do some of those things. We beat the Italians, which was a big deal. Um, it's the only game that we won. 
But, um, you know, Nick Marcakis, who I'm with today, he was a young player. He hadn't gotten called up yet. He pitched, he hit. He didn't pitch much, but he had a great arm. But uh, just being exposed to that, it's something I'm going to remember forever. You became the GM of the Blue Jays in October of 2009. Uh, two months later, you traded Roy Halladay to the Phillies. How difficult was it to trade the face of the franchise? I remember getting asked that. It's crazy to say, but it, it wasn't rattled about it. There had been so much talk about it. He had demanded a trade. And he had a year left on his deal. So we were staring down the barrel of two draft picks. I mean, he wasn't coming back. We were going to enter into a rebuild. We were accumulating draft picks, trading. We were going to lose some free agents. Rod Baraja, Scudero, Scott Downs was a year away from being a free agent. These were the kind of key guys. And the farm at the time, we didn't have much. Zach Stewart was, a, was the top guy. So we knew we had to move him. We knew he wanted to go. We knew he wasn't going to sign back. So it was just we had a full no trade, which certainly didn't help things. But... You just feel like you didn't have an option. Any offer, you just compared it to getting that draft pick at the end, which was a back then it was the Elias Rankins. It was Type A, so you get a first and a, you know, you get two draft picks for him. But the Phillies really were the only place he was willing to go, and um, we did the best deal that we could. We got the best players that we could in that deal. Him having a no trade clause, though, the experience was was brutal, and I had already decided it before, but we didn't give out any no trade clause clauses when I was there for the six years. Um, I just didn't want to go down that path again. It was a tough way to operate. When you became the GM, there were still a handful of GMs around the game that had played in the majors. There's one right now, Jerry Depoto. Wow, the only one. I didn't realize that. Why do you think the game has moved in the direction away from players sort of moving up into that kind of role? Well, you know what? Um, I never thought about it, but I didn't realize there's only one left. That's really incredible. I think there's... And I don't want to take anything away from anyone who plays. I think there's a lot of value to having been in that clubhouse and played and gone through some of those experiences. I've talked a lot about some people, some young individuals that want to get move up here. And there's a lot of administrative parts to this job. I mean, as much as we all want to get out and scout and see players and that kind of stuff, there's a ton of administrative components to this. Being able to lead, set up an organization, staffs, all those kind of things. Just having baseball knowledge isn't enough to lead an organization and run a whole baseball operation. So... I think there's just more and more layers to organizations now. Um, but I don't think necessarily you need to have either background. Now, there's some really bright individuals that played that I think have a chance to be GMs. A lot of it's getting the right opportunity. You created the analytics department of the Blue Jays when you took over. How has the emergence of analytics most impacted the game? Obviously, that's a wide-ranging sure. question. Yeah, no, it is. You know, I think more so on the pro side than the amateur side. And... I still think, obviously, scouting is where I started. I think there's always going to be a role there. I think we can quantify things now, and why wouldn't we want to embrace that? I think the word analytics, the word, you know, the words R&D, um, people just, it's information. It's not, you know, we're not asking people to build algorithms, and we're just getting inf information. We can quantify someone's curveball. We can quantify someone's routes in the outfield. So why wouldn't we use that information? If we can combine it with a scout who's got maybe some in, insight into some changes that we might be able to make with a player, the background, the character, the makeup, the work ethic. I mean, we've all seen players with a ton of talent that never fulfilled that potential. And there's a human element that probably went into that. So um, and as much as we're all using analysis and, and everything else, we still make a lot of, a lot of mistakes as in, as in the industry. Certainly on the draft side, there's a lot of mistakes. So I still think there's always going to be a need for scouts. Um, but I do think on the pro side, the data that we have is really good. I mean, I should note that in addition to creating the analytics department, you also doubled the size of the Blue Jays scouting department. So clearly you were not, you know, a closed-minded yeah, guy. So like a lot of guys get pigeonholed as, right. oh, you're a numbers guy or you're a scouting guy. You, you always like to blend them both. both, which has now really become, you know, sort of the most important trend in front offices is not relying on one over the other. Yeah, I think when they can, when you're looking at something, you have a scout that really feels strongly about a player or, the R&D department feels strongly about a player. When it can match is when you better go hard after that player. I mean, it's, it happens a few times, but when things match and when they do add up and so on, you better go hard after that player. The Vernon Wells contract was the richest in Blue Jays history. You traded into the Angels in January of 2011, three years into the seven-year deal. Most people look at that contract as untradeable. Given the fact that you were able to unload about $90 million, how important was that deal to the franchise in terms of being able to move forward with a little more flexibility? Yeah, I we were, you know, he had a full no trade clause again, so that was a difficult thing and I think at the time he was only willing to go to three places. I think the Rangers, the Padres, 
and obviously the Angels. So it's a needle in a haystack. Now, he came off a great year. He was an all-star, had a great year. Some big deals were signed. I think it was um, you know, a few years earlier, I think Alfonso Soriano had signed that big deal. Carlos, Carlos Lee had signed the big deal. I think Jason Worth had just signed that deal with the Nats. Adrian Beltre had signed the deal. Carl Crawford had signed the deal. So his contract for that number of years, I know a lot was made of it. But it was a shorter term than some of those other deals. And he was coming off a great year. So I'm not trying to defend sure. anything. But that was the reality. I'm not, I think a lot was made of us being able to move the contract. But I think there was a lot of good things about the year he had in the term of the deal. Um, if we didn't move him, we had Jose Batista basically going into the last year of his deal with us. And where our payroll was financially, we couldn't have $20 million of Vernon Wells and 14 to $16 million of Jose Batista both on the payroll. So if we don't move Vernon Wells, I can't tell you that Jose Batista stays in Toronto or that we're able to afford signing him to that deal. So pretty impactful. Pretty impactful. Turns out. I mean, at the time, I got asked about it a lot. And I, you know, I didn't necessarily want to acknowledge that it was real, the impact of both. But I think it would have been challenging to have that much of the payroll. The payroll was about $80 million back then, to have that much of the, of the payroll tied up in those two players. Vernon's contract was seven years and $126 million. Uh, and after that contract and after you unloaded, you already mentioned that you stopped giving out no trade clauses. Right. You also installed a five-year policy where you wouldn't Yeah, that was from our CEO. Five years. <clears throat> yeah. Wouldn't give bonus performance bonuses, incentives, player options, opt-out clauses. Uh, I mean, did that make it harder for you to try? I mean, um, you already had the yeah. the obstacle of trying to bring people to Canada. Sure, sure. So we had, the big one was the no trade clauses. We would separate players in term and dollars. You know, the better you were, you'll make a higher AV. But... Everyone could look in that clubhouse. Every agent could know that you know, no one. we're not going to break this rule and give someone else a no-trade clause. The awards, we didn't give out awards. When we did long-term deals, I looked at New York. The New York Yankees didn't give out awards. And I felt like if we're paying a guy $15, $16, 17000000 million, the $25,000 bonus to make the all-star team wasn't going to move the needle. You should be an all-star. <laughs> right, right. I did, and I didn't feel like um, we were going to lose a deal as a result of that. So um, those were the two that were set in stone. And five years in terms of length, that was set by our CEO. He had been with the Blue Jays a long time. He felt strongly about it. Um, he was the boss. And I was going to roll with it. And it wasn't my decision to make, but I didn't complain. You once said Billy Bean told you when you became the GM, you'll never get caught up. Uh, yeah. How difficult was the adjustment to being in the big chair? He's right. I mean, I remember one of my first conversations with him. He said, you're going to have 4,000 things to do. Um, You'll always have something to do. You're never going to get caught up. And when I first got the job, I tried to do it. I was, I mean, I was living in a condo, and I literally, I couldn't sleep. And I, not because I was nervous, just I was excited. There was so much to do. I'd go into the office at 4 a.m., and um, I was, you know, on top of my emails, on top of everything. Um, but I just was working like crazy. And it, you know, when you learn over time, you work smarter. So um, having been through this now, I just have an appreciation. I understand there's just... You're not going to be able to get everything done, just having the experience. And at the time, I ended up having to adjust. I just looked at the calendar. And as much as you know, we have all these departments I'd like to touch and get involved, whether it's amateur scouting, international scouting, player development, pro scouting, R- the R&D department, um, I can't tackle all those departments. We have the, the team, obviously, staff, the office. I just look at the calendar, what's coming up next. After the 2012 season, you made two very big trades. You brought in Jose Reyes, Mark Burley, and Josh Johnson in one deal. Um, and then you brought an R.A. Dickey in another deal. What did it feel like to essentially really reshape your entire roster with two transactions? Yeah, that was a whirlwind. There was a lot that went on um, 2012, just where the organization was, um, where everything was going. In hindsight, we moved too fast. I think from a a brand standpoint, what it did for the city, the country, uh, attendance, all those things moved the needle tremendously. From a baseball standpoint, in hindsight, we weren't ready to take that jump. And, um, you know, really we were, you know, in doing those things, we were kind of, um, we kind of stayed stagnant there for that period, 2013, 2014. And I remember at the end of 2014, we finally had some contracts coming off the books. And I think I even said it at the end of my press conference at the end of 14. I felt like I'm more excited about the offseason in 14 than I'd been in any of the other ones because we had money coming off financial flexibility, and I felt like, I talked about this, I had evolved as a GM, I had learned from a lot of mistakes, and I finally started, in my mind, 
put together um, what type of players we want to have in the clubhouse. I was so caught up in tools and talent and ability early on, and I wasn't as preoccupied with putting a team together. And when I say team, I really highlight the word team and how the pieces fit and what you want to be about. And I know that sounds kind of corny, but I think it's real. Um, and I wouldn't have said that in 2010 or 2011. And um, it took me some time to sort of balance that out. But 14, it was such a, we were so specific about the type of player we were going to bring in. And it wasn't just talent and ability and performance. You needed to have the other components. And if you didn't, we weren't even going to touch you. Even if on, on the stat sheet, performance-wise, you would check a lot of boxes, we were going to look for a certain type of player. Everything you just said about the type of player you were looking for in 2014, it's like you were reading a biography of Russell Martin. Uh, yeah. And that was obviously one of your big signings. He was a key guy for us. What? Forget a baseball perspective. Forget sure. even what he provides in a clubhouse. For you as a kid who grew up in Montreal and knowing how important the Blue Jays are to Canada once the Expos left, what did it mean to you to be able to bring a Canadian star to play in Toronto? You know... A lot gets made of, even in Atlanta, people from Georgia, from the city, Canada. I, uh, Russ being Canadian from Canada was a cherry on top. But I'd be candid. It didn't move the needle. It's a nice story. I'd seen Brett Laurie come through. I'd seen other players. You know, the fan base in Canada wants a winning team. I mean, they've embraced in all sports. It didn't matter where the athletes were from. At the end of the day, they want elite athletes, great players. Russ obviously had won. The receiving was outstanding with the framing. We love the bat. The athleticism, he wasn't on the deal very often at all. Uh, we felt the athleticism would allow him to perform at a high level for a long time. He was the number one target. We had to have him. And um, we used the Canadian angle. I mean, I drove to Montreal about five times to go back and forth to see him. We knew he loved the Canadians. My first meeting with him was basically when, um, you know, the first few weeks of free agency, the Canadians were playing. We got a box. We did it quietly. We got a suite. We met with him an hour before the game, and then I said, hey, the box is yours. Bring in your buddies. Hang out. But just met with him, explained to him what we were trying to do, what we, what we were trying to do as a team, how he was really important to us. And I think I remember telling him, like, we're going to sign you. Like, I don't care. You're going to meet with the Cubs and the Dodgers and all that, but just know that we're going to sign you. And it's just there's no option. And I remember he was having a hard time. At least that's the way it was presented to us. And, look, those two clubs were great. Dodgers had a lot to sell. Certainly the Cubs did as well. And in history in LA, yeah, as well. a lot of history, sure. And um, but I remember telling we got on a conference call with him one time, um, maybe two days before we agreed, and I think we played the Canadian Canadian anthem just to start as a joke to kind of break <laughs> the ice. And uh, I remember telling him like, if we can't sign you, who the heck are we going to sign? If we can't sign this great Canadian player, Toronto, your family can come see you. We thought we had a lot, you know, a lot to sell, but um, that's where going to year five got the deal done. Everyone else was at four years, I think. $74 million was where everyone was. The fifth year, it was an extra $8 million total. And we looked at guys like A.J. Pruszynski signing with the Boston Red Sox at 36 years old at $8 million. And we felt like if the number is 72 to $74 million over four, that fifth year to get the player and what he meant, well, having Batista, having Josh Donaldson, having Edwin Encarnacion, guys in the prime of their careers and being an AGM and seeing my first year, Carlos Delgado was there for the last year of his Toronto time, and then seeing Roy Halladay and some great players roll through it, never getting a chance to see them in the playoffs and do some of those things. We didn't want to waste those prime years of those guys. Good recruiting, bringing him to the Canadians game and giving him a box. I'm sure, yeah, that's, uh, I'm sure yeah, that went a long way. Helped. So you mentioned Donaldson. You traded for him a few weeks after, I think, you signed Russell. Yeah. Um, unlike Edwin and Bautista, who you didn't know what they were going to become, you knew Donaldson was a really good player. Did you know he was going to reach the levels he then went on to reach in Toronto? I mean, no. did you think you were signing a guy who would win the MVP award? No, no. We, um, you know, and I've said this as well, we struggled with the deal. Ultimately, we did it, but you know, we liked all the players that we gave up in that deal. We didn't, you know, even when we signed Jose Batista to an extension, I remember three days after, I was driving in my car to the spring training complex, and think, what did we just do? $65 million. It was just a lot of money. As much as we believed in him and the analysis and everything, we liked him, we were prepared to do it. Um, Josh, we were excited to get him. It was much as you looked at the defense, everyone talked about his war compared to Trout and so on, and everything else offensively. You looked at the change in ballparks and things like that. Um, you know, the one thing that I never really valued was the game's play call. That's, you know, I'm looking at all the other stuff. So 
And I do think there's a mentality that goes with that, a winning mentality. Uh, people want to call it tough. Um, but, you know, again, that wasn't the reason because, he, you know, he played a lot of games. But he was a durable player, and you knew he played hard. And you knew likely he probably could have spent some time in the DL. But it did give you some insight when you started doing work and what he was about. Russ Martin the same way. Um, what these guys are about, baseball rats, gamers, um, they can make teammates better. It doesn't show up on the stat sheet, but I've seen it. You guys are sort of middling along in 2015, and then the big summer comes. Uh, you trade for Tulowitzki, you trade for David Price. Was there a sense of urgency to any extent that you needed to make a run to get to the postseason? That you no, made, I think made the those big, big moves? I think the biggest thing was we hadn't ever had a big trade deadline before, and the run differential at the time was through the roof. Encarnacion was having a monster year, wire to wire. Jose Batista hurt his shoulder but was still DHing early on, finally moved to the outfield towards the end. Um, Josh Donaldson was having an MVP caliber year. So we had these monsters in the middle of the lineup. We were scoring a ton of runs. We were losing a ton of one-run games. When we won, we won big. The run differential at the time, I think, was definitely was tops in the AL. And everything was done. One, we felt like regardless, it would be regression to mean that it, we would come back and be better than we were. Our run differential was so strong that the one loss at the time should have been significantly stronger. Our deep defense was the issue. As much as people talked about price and so on, we had guys like, no disrespect to these guys, but they're not outfielders. Chris Colabello and Danny Valencia playing the corners in the outfield. Reyes was not having a very good year defensively at, short, at short, shortstop. So um, we felt like the biggest change for us was tightening up the defense because the components and the parts were there. We looked at the fact that we played the Yankees 13 more times, and we felt like we had a great team. We just needed to tighten up the defense. A bit, and obviously adding a guy like Price helped. But once we tightened up the defense, everyone on that rotation got better. Ra Dickey got better. Marco Estrada got better. The bullpen got better, and we just started to roll. The rest of that season was pretty magical. You guys went on a forty-two and fourteen run, overtook the Yankees. What did it mean to get the Blue Jays back to the postseason for the first time in twenty-two years? I get the chills when you talk about it now. I was proud of the team. I was proud of. Uh, again, this sounds corny, but I love the people that we had in the clubhouse and. I think they connected with the city. They connected with the market. I think the fans felt it. They loved being there. They wanted to be there. Um, obviously, we were winning, and it was great. But you know, winning the East, you know, we wanted to get in any way we could, wild card and so on. But uh, it was really gratifying to win the division because of the respect you have for every other office in that division, how hard it is. You respect every GM in that division, how hard it is. They're all competing. All those clubs are trying to make the playoffs that year. And... It was such a gratifying thing to win the division more than anything else. And um, just a sense of pride and then seeing how the country came alive, the city came alive. I talked about it for years leading up to that moment. The upside of the market, the upside of Toronto, I equated it to basically a candle and trying to light the wick. And once you do, that place is going to go off. Because the upside, the TV ratings, attendance, the payroll had a chance. Once you sparked it, you were going to just flip the switch on the whole organization and open up a world of things. Uh, payroll, things like that, um, and be back to what it was. It was They were the New York Yankees in the early 90s, attendance and so on. And it had been viewed for a long time as a small to mid-market club, and it was not. It was anything but that. And when the Blue Jays in Canada all of a sudden became, you know, one of the people talked about it, what a great place it was to play, there's a sense, sense of pride, you know, being Canadian as well. Um, because you know what it can be, you know what it was, you know what the fan base is like, and now you're on the big, you're on the big stage, and you have players certainly advocating for it. The media is advocating for it, and when people talked about how great the crowds were, and what a great place it was to play, and what a hard place it was to play as an opponent, there's a great sense of pride that comes with that. In the midst of that second half run, the Blue Jays hired Mark Shapiro as president and CEO. Were you surprised when that move was made? No, I I know they were going to hire a CEO. It was talked about um, for a long time, and. Um, I was told at the beginning of September, and um, you know I knew there was going to be a new CEO hire. I didn't know. Um, I had talked to to ownership a little bit about signing a contract extension at the time. Um, you know I talked to some friends and so on, and they said, you know what, why don't you wait a little bit just to find out what the direction of the club's going to be, things like that. You don't need to jump in anything. Um, I had every intention and plan of staying there. Um, like I said, my wife's family's there. Our kids were in school put a lot of time, um, it was the best year of our lives there, and things were rolling, and we felt really good about the team going forward, so, um, 
you know, it was one of those things that, you know, uh, spent some time with Mark, obviously not much because he was still working for the Indians, but he was great. He was honest. He was up front. Um, everything we talked about, his plan, long-term thoughts. But I think the more I just went through the process, I just didn't know that I was going to be the right fit to stay there. So tough, tough call for me. Uh, but to this day, um, I have no complaints because I was treated exceptionally well by ownership, by Mark. I was given every opportunity to stay. I was given. I was offered a very generous contract extension, and um, it's a decision I made with my wife. And we talked about it. And I remember telling her at the time, you know, if you want me to sign this thing, I will. I'll stay. I understand to displace us is not fair, and it's not my decision alone. So, um, but at the end of the day, I had made decisions in my life. Whether it was leaving my dad's heating and ventilation company, whether it was leaving the Expos, I had never made decisions based on money. And it was a little bit, you know, that I was I was alone at the time. I didn't have a wife. I didn't have kids. I didn't have a family. So this was a little more unique. But um, I just wanted to trust my instincts and do something because you love to do it. Be somewhere where you want to be, uh, that you think you're going to thrive and you're going to do well in. And um, like I said at the time, I didn't feel like the right fit for me. And that's no one's fault. That's mine. And that's 100% on me. So you turn down the five-year offer and you move on from the Blue Jays. How tough was it to leave that organization a week after you had just been watching your team play in the ALCS? Really tough. Um, you know, it was almost like, you know, you didn't get a chance to enjoy it. I mean, obviously, you, you know, the loss stung, um, and that was tough. And you know, we were still talking about some – I had already gone through and planned for the off season and gone through some things. And, you know, um, I still – I worked up until the last day my contract was up. I felt it was important. You sign a contract, you honor it. If I had a year left on my deal, I wouldn't have left. I would have stayed. So – I was taught that early on. You sign a contract, you 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 certainly honor it. I honored it till the last day, until it expired. Um, after the fact, it was a little weird. It was a little surreal. Um, but, um, you know, it was one of those things that um, I didn't look back. I didn't have any regrets. It was tough that, you know, you wanted to experience the off season. We had some plans, you know, some things we wanted to pursue. Uh, you want to be able to experience getting back in the clubhouse the next spring and going after it. You know, I, I thought about the Royals and... You know they almost you know they got to the World Series. They didn't win the next year. They they got over the top. I thought you know, this team is that close to just one more step and getting to the World Series. But you know it didn't work out that way. But I still have a lot of friends there. I still want to see them do well. Um, I'm always going to want to see them do well. I'm always going to have. I tell my kids, you still cheer for Toronto. It's the only Canadian team. They still have their Jays gear. They still wear it at times. Um, they have their LA gear now too, and they have their Atlantic gear. So um, we still go back to Toronto a ton in the summer. Family. Family's still big Jays fans. Obviously, they're going to be Braves fans, so being in the NL helps. But um, I only have good things to say, and I'm going to remember my time there forever. So they're looking for the World Series rematch a couple of decades later. That would be awesome. <laughs> that would be awesome. So shortly before you spoke with the Toronto media to discuss your departure, you learned that you won Executive of the Year. Was that sort of a bittersweet day? Yeah. I remember the day it was announced um, that I left. I think they just accelerated because normally you get announced at the GM meetings. So I didn't know that Sporting News were going to just announce it that same day. So I was I had a conference call with the media. I think it, you know it leaked in the morning, and um, I had a conference call scheduled with the media sometime in the afternoon. I think it was one, and you know ten minutes before or five minutes before I had to do this call. My wife, I guess the home line rang, and my wife said it was our PR director with Toronto, and he said, um, "You want to tell me that I won Executive of the Year?" So it was um, it was really rewarding really gratifying because it was from your peers. So knowing that you're competing against all those guys, you re you respect them. Um, you know, I remember Theo won it, I think, last year, two years ago. Um, two years ago, and I remember he went up and spoke. And the one thing he said is, as, as you know, the success that he's had and everything he's done, he talked about he felt like, he finally felt like when he first got the job, he didn't know that he fit in or he was one of the, the GMs. And it's he talked about he finally felt like he was part of the, the group. I think when you're young and you're starting, you don't really know where you fit. I was very much, you know, especially with other GMs and these meetings for the first time, you keep your mouth shut and it's a little surreal that you're there. But um, it was the greatest sign of respect I could have gotten because you don't know what they thought of you. You know, you, you're polite with everybody on the phone. You deal with them. You, hopefully you treat them the way you want to be treated. Um, but the fact that they could acknowledge your, your work and, you know, they respect you enough to vote for you. With all the great candidates and everything else, that meant the world to me. It's amazing that Theo didn't win that award in Boston. I guess breaking an 86-year curse wasn't right. enough. You had to break a 108-year right. curse to, to get right. that one. Uh, so you go on to become the vice president of baseball operations with the Dodgers. 
long way from Toronto. Yeah. What made Los Angeles the right fit for you and your family at that time? Yeah, so I didn't know, obviously, when I, um, when I left Toronto, I had no idea what was going to happen. I told my wife, I'll get a job. Um, you know, probably not a GF. You know, there had been five openings and at the time in September and so on, but we were going through that, that run, and it wasn't like I was going to walk away from Toronto and start applying for jobs. So you know, I said, I'm not going to get a GM job, and I was fine with that. I, I, I was at peace with it. I didn't need to do the job again. Um, I still wanted to work somewhere. I was going to be happy and fulfilled and so on. So um, I got a lot, a lot of calls, which I was really, I appreciated every call that I had from every team just expressing some interest and so on, and that was great. I valued every call, whether it was low job, high job, whatever it was. And then ultimately, as I talked with clubs, it really came down to, ironically enough, the Astros in L.A. And um, I was intrigued by both because I felt like I respected both of the officers. Obviously, Andrew, Farhan, Jeff. And I felt like, well, I want to go somewhere I have a chance to learn and get better. And um, even though I would exposed to, you know, R&D and the analytical side, I just felt like these are really bright front offices and I can only get better going to work there. And um, tough decision between the two. Um, and ultimately decided to go to L.A. Um, I had more of a longstanding relationship with Andrew and Farhan, and I think that's what ultimately swung it. Uh, but I think both options would have been great. And, um, you know, being there for two years, I think I said it after I got this job, I could have done another two or three. I was, I feel like I learned a ton. I, I got better. And, um, you know, competing against those guys year in and year out, you always thought you, you don't get a chance to work with your peers or people you respect and you really admire. So um, I, w- I was really excited about it. I was fulfilled. I was enjoying it. Um, I had no plans to leave. And we wouldn't have moved as a family if I just thought it was going to be a holding ground for the next potential opportunity or the next job. It was going to take a lot for me to leave just because I worked with friends I was fulfilled. We had a chance to win year in and year out. Um, I didn't think I could find a better setup than what I had there. And that's why we decided to move as a family. And we felt like, I felt like there was going to be stability and we were going to be there for a long time. So, you know, it was the right job, the right spot I was going to be open to. And again, that's not to be arrogant. Like I could pick my spot or just assume that it would even show up. Um, I was fully prepared that I would never get a phone call again, but I was fine with it because I felt like I had as good a job as I ever could, could ask for in L.A. You fell one series shy of the World Series with the Blue Jays last year. You get there with the Dodgers. What was it like watching the World Series, especially that World Series, from the standpoint of, of your position with the Dodgers? Yeah, it was a blur. Like I said, my first year with the Dodgers, we got to Game 6 of the CS. It was like two years in a row, Game 6 of the CS, and we lost. And I thought, man, I just had bad luck. And then to get over the hump and to get to the World Series, I just kept telling myself to experience, I may never get to World Series again working for any team. So I really wanted to soak it in and really wanted to enjoy it and just appreciate you know, the fact that some people never even get this close. So just to be, be around it, be exposed to it. i got to tell you, the series itself was so intense. Um, it was such a whirlwind of emotions. I almost don't remember a lot of it. It's just you're so locked in on every pitch, the back and forth. I didn't enjoy a second of it. Well, the, only, the only thing I would say I really enjoyed was after the win game six and getting ready for game seven, knowing that, wow, we have a chance to win the World Series tonight. And that's the one time I was excited. I was really happy. The rest was just stress. A couple weeks later, the GM meetings are about to start, and you're named as the new Braves GM, replacing John Coppolella. What attracted you most to the situation in Atlanta? A few things. Um, one, when they called... To, I interviewed between Game 5 and 6 of the World Series. It was after the tough Game 5 loss. And um, I didn't feel it was appropriate to spend time on the Braves to prepare. We are in the World Series. You know, it was My focus should have been solely on the World Series. So I didn't do a ton uh, after Game 5 was over. Then I went back to my hotel room. And it was late. I just basically like crammed. I stayed up practically all night. Just And I knew, obviously, general stuff about the organization, the roster, and so on. Um, my big thing was to come in here and meet with everybody and get a feel for, you know, I do believe who you work with, who you work for is everything. As much as you could talk about the city and the talent and everything else, you have to look at these jobs. like You're going to be in them for 10 to 20 years. So the players are going to change, the roster is going to change, but who do you come in and work with every day? We work together a lot, um, and I was just really impressed with uh, the people that I got a chance to sit down with. And, you know, knowing that my direct report was going to be Terry McGurk, and sitting down talking with him, spending some time with him, hearing him talk about the city, the Braves, what their plans were. Uh, he made me feel great, and I felt like, wow, I'd love to work for work for him. And I remember coming back and telling my wife, like, 
he's great. And I would love to work for this guy. would be as good a boss as you're ever going to find. You chose to retain Brian Snicker as your manager after you took over. What do you like most about him as a manager? I'm getting to learn him. Um, one, the players, they love him. Um, I think the biggest thing that comes to mind is you just asking this question. The humility is off the charts. And it's a... Uh, you know, it's an important quality to have, and the humility and the openness to learn. I mean, we've—I learned a lot of things in LA, and there's, you know, obviously some things that we did in Toronto that I really liked. And um, not to say it's right or wrong, but things I believe in. And he's been exceptionally open to it, and um, he's got no ego whatsoever. He's secure in himself. Like I said, the players really feel strongly about him. Uh, the staff likes to work for him. I'll get a chance to, you know, spend some time with him when the season starts in-game, things like that. I can't speak to you know, how he is in that, running a bullpen and things like that. Those are things you just spend time with. But in terms of being able to work with him day in and day out, he's been outstanding. How challenging is it to take over a team that received the strict penalties it did as a result of your predecessor's actions, I mean, just knowing that now you've inherited them? You know what? A lot's been made of that, and it'd be easy to you know, make excuses or try to you know, um, play it up in a way. And But I haven't been shy about saying, one, I think... The work that's been done here by John Hart, the baseball operations group, um, obviously he ran that. Frank ran before him, signing guys like Ozzy Albies, Ronald Acuna, the farm, the players that they have here, the amateur department, the player development department. The talent on the field, I know it didn't show itself in the wins and losses last year, but you start going through, and even some of the contracts that were done as, as well. This place is in great shape. Even at the end of 2018, from a contractual standpoint, it's pretty clean. Uh, then you look at the upside of the new ballpark, new spring training facility, I said this at the time. I think this is as good a job as you're going to find in sports. And obviously things happened, um, been well documented, talked about. We lost players, rightfully so. But it's really a blip. And that's not to condone it or to downplay it. But you know, for me to sit there and say, woe is us, and it makes things more challenging, we've got a ton of young players. They did a tremendous job before I even stepped foot in here. There's a ton of players on, on, that, on that field right now. In terms of the 25 men, there's a ton of really good employees that are here that were a part of that. So, if anything, um, we've been put in a great spot. You know, the challenge for us is to now take all this talent and all the great work that's been done here, take it to the next level, and have it finally show up in Atlanta with the wins. You talked about the financial situation beyond 2018. How important was being able to make the Mad Camp deal for you in terms of you know sort of creating some more of that flexibility? Huge. I mean, it was the it was my number one priority from a player standpoint, from a roster standpoint. That was my my number one goal this offseason. A few reasons: having a guy like Ronald Acuna that again I hadn't had a chance to see him play until I got down here in spring training. But everybody, the industry, but everybody internally felt like he was prepared at some point, in 2018, to make an impact. So knowing that Matt had two years remaining on his deal, that we were going to want to play Ronald at some point, I don't know how that we were going to handle that. We have to sit him down, have Ronald stay down for two years. It wasn't something that was really going to make sense for us. So that was first and foremost. Being able to open up a spot for him at some point in 2018 was really important. And beyond that, then you have the financial component of at the end of 2018, knowing we have all that financial flexibility um, and a lot more information about our young core right now. You know, We have a lot of really good young players all over the place, but they can go both ways in the current year. Do they take a step and really establish themselves and they're guys that we're going to commit to and know that they're going to take spots? Or maybe they regress and they need more time. And we might need those dollars to whether it's free agent market or trade. Getting to know some of our young players as well. They're not all going to come up here. Some are going to need to get used in trade. So I think from a positioning standpoint, we're positioned well where there's a ton of talent on that field. They can go both ways. But we have the flexibility come the offseason to go any direction that we want to. Whether it's to you know spend some money, make some trades. We have the assets to do that. Hopefully these guys take a step and we have a bunch of 0-2 to two players that really take down key spots. And we don't need to add as much from a financial standpoint. It gives us opportunities to do some other things. Sort of a happy coincidence that you were able to make that deal with the team you had just left? Oh, I think it helped that I knew. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, there's no doubt about it. I mean, having worked there, I knew what their goals were. Um, and it was easy to work together. I think, you know, it was. Um, I knew exactly what their goals were. They knew what mine were. Um, there's a fairness there that, you know, you, you can work quickly. There's a, there's a trust. I think anytime you're doing a deal, you need trust. You need to believe what the other person on the other end is saying. Otherwise, you're going to feel like the, the ball's going to move. And it's hard to close a deal when you don't have trust on the other side. So having that, we were able to have that deal come together. But I know they were exploring a lot of things before they committed to us. Um, we were exploring some things as well. But really, that was the only deal that was going to make sense for us. Um, otherwise, we would have stood pat. 
Some have made the comparison that you've inherited a talent-rich system similar to the one John Scherholz inherited almost 30 years ago. How bright is the long-term future of the Braves? I'm getting to know the players. There's no question there's a ton of talent here. What the ultimate ceiling and upside of each of these players are, I don't know yet. Um, but I feel like there's a ton of big league players that I know what they ultimately become. Um, you know, are all these young arms going to become front of the rotation guys? Are they going to be mid back? And that that's going to take time to evaluate. You know, the thing I like about spring training is I'm getting to meet a lot of these kids and getting to know them and make what makes them tick and get a sense of the work ethic, the character. You can form an opinion. You watch video. You ask. You read scouting reports. You look at the at the data. Um, but also that human element. That's really that piece that's really important to me. That again, I didn't probably place value on and really emphasize it nearly enough early in my career as a GM. Well, no pressure. John put together a Hall of Fame career with his oh, yeah. system, so you know you got a lot to like live I up said, to. The fact that he's around and we still get to you know ask him questions and the success that they had here, I don't think will ever be du- duplicated. So. If we can even, you know, have a small a small percentage of what they did, we're going to be in great shape. Alex Antopoulos, Braves Executive Vice President and General Manager, thank you very much for your time. Appreciate it. Really enjoyed it. Many thanks to Alex Anthopoulos for taking the time to sit down for this week's Executive Access Podcast. The 2018 season will be a critical one for the Braves, who must find out whether their collection of prospects are ready to take the next step in the big leagues. If they do, Atlanta could be a force for years to come. Our next episode will feature a lengthy conversation with Cardinals General Manager Michael Gersh. The Chicago native got his start in the business world before taking a sharp turn and making a transition into baseball. He's been with the Cardinals ever since, moving up through the ranks to become their GM last summer. We'll discuss his business background, the leap of faith it took to make that career switch the way he did, as well as the Albert Pujols negotiations and why they literally made him sick to his stomach. You can search for Executive Access on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen to podcasts, so be sure to subscribe and enjoy these conversations all season long. If you like what you hear, leave us a review while you're at it. We always appreciate those. And be sure to tell all the baseball fans in your life about Executive Access. The more, the merrier. Until next time, I'm Mark Feinsand. It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro.